Hello, this is Jack Tutor of Attention Magazine. Welcome to the Crucial Listening Podcast, where I speak to musicians and sound artists about the three albums that are most important to them. I'm sorry about my gruff voice. I went to Glastonbury last weekend and sung all of Radiohead's songs for them. So that's why you've got this unpleasant tone coming at your ears right now. I, I won't keep you long. I know it's not very nice. But my guest this time is Lawrence English, an Australian sound artist who has released a lot of my favourite music generally, but in particular his most recent album, Cruel Optimism, is incredible. Um, it feels like a particularly pertinent album to have on my person right now. There's a real sense of emergency and imminent meltdown, which feels like a very appropriate soundtrack to the current sense of disarray and impending disaster that we face in the UK, as well as in other places globally. Um, it's beautiful as well, which seems strange to say. Terrible and beautiful. But he worked with loads of collaborators and we start this interview by talking about his experiences making this record. And in fact, those conversations run through our entire interview here. They keep coming back in his experiences. And that's largely due to the choices that he made in his albums that he picked. There are a few of his recent collaborators included in the list of artists that comprise his most important albums. He's wonderfully articulate a really fascinating person to just listen to. And so this one was an absolute treat. You can find more information, including links to Lawrence's work and Room 40, as well as links to more information on the albums he picks at attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening. Anyway, on with the show. English, welcome to Crucial Listening. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So, as I'm speaking to you, you've only just recently returned from a uh, trip to Tbilisi in Georgia, um, where you were performing as part of Soul Festival, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I've just recovered from the jet lag. <laughs> <laughs> I can say it's an unusual circumstance that I, I get jet lag, but I think because it was such a short trip, my body did not acclimatize at one end and then decided to be extra hateful when I got back <laughs> to this end. So I've suffered, and I, I, I deserve that suffering. I mean, it's, it's un, unfair to expect um, a human body to travel halfway across the world and then halfway back again and change uh, hemispheres and maintain itself in any kind of order. That's a, that's a ridiculous kind of proposition, I think. So I respect my body for being hateful. <laughs> 
(laughs) (laughs) I'm speaking to you in advance of doing two night shifts next week, actually, and then so flipping my body upside down and then putting it the right way up again. So I will be. It will give you. It will give you a little reminder. You know, don't mess with me too much. Be gentle. (laughs) So I'm going to assume that as part of your performance. Um, most, if not all, of the material you were playing was from Cruel Optimism, your latest record. Is that fair? To say? Yeah, I mean, the basically the way that the the set structure at the moment, there's uh, sort of several pieces from Cruel Optimism and some from Wilderness of Mirrors, and then there's a, a couple of joining pieces that are, I guess, extrapolated out of the material that was part of the Peregrine. But really, for me, there's a pretty strong relationship between. Uh, wilderness of mirrors and cruel optimism so they kind of weave together and particularly live they kind of have the same uh physical capacity i suppose you'd say uh so they really sort of work together i think as as pieces i mean the concert is very much about this idea of uh the kind of bodily affect uh and how sound uh operates on and and in the body so it's it's about this uh, recognition of the body as an ear, and that's really something I've been developing probably for the last sort of six or seven years in performance, but I think in the last sort of three or four years it's really resolved into something that is about that kind of tactility of of uh, of how the body you know exists in sound. I'm interested because I remember when I spoke to you did an interview maybe three years back when Wilderness of Mirrors was coming out and you'd been speaking at the time about the fact that you were reflecting on the question of how to present your music in the live environment and the um, visceral element of listening has Cruel Optimism it sounds like it's been an extension of of that line of thinking but it has it um, led you to re-reflect on that question or has it enabled you to kind of expand your understanding of how to um, wield your material in the live setting to optimize that physical impact yeah i think with when i was working on wilderness of mirrors i'd kind of come out of a period of not performing very much there was a couple of years there were really i performed uh as little like less than 10 times a year for, for a couple of years, uh, where I really wasn't sure about what, you know, what the relation is between audience and performer, between sound and space. Uh, how is it that we kind of share an experience when when a concert takes place? I was really interested in trying to find a meaning there that I didn't necessarily feel was so apparent. So. After these couple of years of, of, of not quite being sure, I think I, I wanted to try and find a way to align the possibilities of the, of the studio work and, and the live thing. And Wilderness and Mirrors definitely was that. I mean, leading into that record, I'd gone uh, to, to see a number of groups. Um, and I, I think I was probably a little bit just generally disillusioned with performance. You know, I'd... I'd, I'd was very fortunate in my across my 20s and into my 30s i saw thousands of bands basically i was doing a lot of music writing and and uh cultural review stuff and uh so you know every weekend especially in my early 20s i'd go and see between you know six and 12 bands in a weekend and saw some incredible music 
you know, I, I think back to that time now and think of just how extraordinarily uh, privileged it was to, to be able to go literally one night after another to see these groups. But at some point I, I, I found it more of a problematic situation. And I think it was probably to do with my sense of how performance was unfolding. And then as I was about halfway through Wilderness of Mirrors, uh, I went to, to see My Bloody Valentine, uh, Swans, and Einstein's End in Neubauten in this period of 11 days. And a, a few months before that, I'd, I'd, I'd been to listen to Earth. And just between those groups, and particularly that period of like Swans and Neubauten and, uh, and My Bloody Valentine, I really thought, wow, there is this physical capacity of sound to occupy the body that is really powerful and really seductive and sometimes very confronting and i i became very interested in how it was that the work that i was doing could exist in that space so that's pretty much where i guess wilderness and mirrors really started to take shape was at that moment where i realized well there's there's this relationship that, you know, sonically I've been exploring for a while around density and saturation and the kind of abilities of us as listeners when we come in contact with something like music, you know, how it is that we can navigate that experience and then flipping that into a kind of bodily experience. And I really wanted to find that nexus between the two. And Wilderness of Mirrors was, I guess, the first step into that. And then I think with with Cool Optimism, I think, I'd had a lot of those experiences uh, touring Wilderness of Mirrors and I started to recognise what the elements were that could be deployed and I wanted to push them further in ways that I guess historically I wouldn't have done with my work. So something like hammering a screw on cruel optimism is not the way I would approach sound generally. Um, it's still very much about this question of density, but it was maybe going in a much further pushing this at to the absolute extreme of how much information I can discernibly put into a piece, but then having it uh, very much more about this kind of attack and decay model rather than a sort of sustained assault. Um, so it's been interesting kind of working with that. And the concerts I've done for Cruel Optimism so far have been really, I have to say, completely wonderful. The, the one in Tbilisi, for example, was incredibly physical. I asked the audience to lie down on the floor, this beautiful garden hall in, in, in the, the, the town there. And, uh, you know, there's this chance for the body to come in contact with, with other objects, like in this case, the floor, and, and to sense that vibration, not just within itself but also like from other objects and from each other you know because people when they're together on a floor there's this kind of intimacy there and i also became very conscious of the fact that with performance there is this really powerful meeting that takes place you know that's about a shared experience that everyone in that room is going to experience the sound differently and you know they're going to have an interior listening to that music that is going to be their own that's that reflects their past their things that have happened to them but we're all sharing that moment together so i think there's a kind of interesting idea of community and solidarity that's offered in performance like that and i'm very interested in that idea i mean it's partly coming out of things around i've been i found the new judith butler book around this idea of uh sort of performativity like a public assembly and performativity really interesting because i think in 
concert, that's something that is there. And if we recognise it and, and look at it as a kind of sort of political act in a way, there's an opportunity for us to think of how it is that we relate to each other and what those experiences mean in an individuated way in terms of how it is we take in the sound, but also collectively together, that we can, you know, be sharing time and space but still have very individual reactions to that time and space. I think there's, hearing you talk about this, there seems to be a quite a lot of expectation placed upon music and artists making music um, to accommodate both of the primary environments in which that music is expected to exist, given the vast uh, contrast between listening to music that's been recorded and having that as a personal experience, and then also taking effectively the same material or at least the kernel of that material certainly the same process into a live setting and as you've described then making the music um, become part of something that is entirely different and interacts with the listener in such a different way Um, it's quite bizarre now I think about it that we expect this creative thing to perform both functions and i think the bands that you mention clearly they have this ability to perceive both as different entities and wield the material across both platforms and and to reshape it to to be optimal in both circumstances yeah i think there's an interesting question around control as well like when you make a record you exert a certain amount of control until the point at which that record is is sent out into the world. And at that point, you relieve yourself of all control and basically say to people, this is a piece of work that you can encounter in any way that you want. You can put on headphones and listen to it while you, you know, do the laundry. You can sit in a black room and put on a loud hi-fi and be completely absorbed in it. Or you can sit on the tube and read a book and be generally distracted and use it as as a kind of blockout, an audio blockout blind for the sound around you. So I think that's that's a very interesting thought for how it is that music kind of exists in the world, like as a kind of recorded object. At the other end of that, this idea of like performance, again, is is a question of control. And I guess in some respects, the capacity of uh, you know an artist to work sound is it's a really impressive thing to watch. I mean, those groups that I spoke to, and I think it's a kind of slightly different dynamic. Uh, th- those groups are incredible people working together to create sound. There's a kind of gestural physicality to the work that exists uh, on top of the kind of actual sonic materials as well. But uh, I think when you go and experience something like, you know, the last 20 minutes of a My Bloody Valentine concert <laughs> is an extraordinary, it's an extraordinary experience. I mean, honestly, that was one of the things that I'd never really felt whatever it was that I felt. My, my you know, pant legs blowing in the breeze when there was no wind. You know, that was an <laughs> extraordinary experience. Uh, and it really made me recognize the capacity for sound to really affect us uh, in, in a bodily way and, and obviously in a, in a kind of interior psychological way as well. But that kind of, that nexus point, uh, I think this is the thing I'm really searching for in concerts is that nexus point between the appreciation of sound 
uh, and and this synesthetic transformation where sound and touch uh, are kind of bound together, you know. Or in, in some cases, it's just touch, and if you're unclear about exactly how the sound operates, or the reverse of that. So I think there's this point at which sound listening shifts from from the mind to the body, uh, and I think that's a really interesting place to kind of work because when you take one away from the other like you know the concert at the moment has some very kind of dynamic shifts where there's very extreme moments where it's like well you know it almost feels like can we do this together you know when the sound is building up and then when it finally breaks the absence of low frequency really makes you recognize wow my body was completely immersed in this thing that i didn't wasn't necessarily able to take in and when it's gone you really recognize the difference so it's this kind of process of relief almost that happens and i mean that almost in in a psychological way but also in a, in a kind of uh, aesthetic um compositional way you know being able to put two things against each other and get a, a different dimension out of the work so i think you know at its best music really operates at those two levels particularly in a performative situation in a in a, in a kind of studio or home listening uh, uh, you know recorded music medium it's a very different relationship. There's a there's a detail that can exist there that maybe is more difficult to replicate uh, under certain circumstances in in a live setting. But uh, that's the kind of beauty of it. You don't want them to be the same. If they are the same, it's boring, <laughs> completely, utterly, decimatingly boring. And uh, I'm I'm trying to avoid this uh, this uh, sensation of boredom. And I mean that's what's made me so excited recently about you know rediscovering different kinds of performance work. I mean, that I, I found it completely invigorating, these three groups during that period. And I've, you know, since that time, had a number of other experiences with with music where, in a, in a live setting, where you really just realise the capacity for, you know, it to speak to us uh, in a way that's really unlike other kinds of communication mediums. That's the beauty of it. Well, this could probably work as a good segue into talking about one of your picks because I imagine we'll talk in greater detail about the effect of music on the body and the ex- bodily experience of live performance uh, at least one other point during the um, selections that you've made um, mm. so I'd like to uh, ask you to put forward your first choice uh, as an album uh, that you've picked for this crucial listening selection, and if you wouldn't mind as well, just explaining why this is important to you. Um, well, uh, well, I've chosen the first one I've chosen is Swan's uh, Filth record, and I mean it's a uh, it's it's an interesting choice, I think, uh, in that I mean one I have a obviously have a huge admiration for Swan's as as a group and as a group of musicians, you know, they over various periods they have really um, created some very powerful emotive work, but also affective work uh, in a way that not a lot of groups have, I think. Particularly in this latest incarnation, um, I think they've opened up a new way of approaching the capacity of what they can do as a, as a band, as players together as a group of musicians, it's really quite an extraordinary thing to watch. And, you know, I, I saw them when they were touring the Sia and the energy that came off the stage. And by that, I mean the, the actual 
sonic energy that came off the stage and the sort of performative energy that came off the stage was extraordinary, extraordinarily compelling. It basically uh, made me recognise the capacity of what can happen when people work t- together uh, and the tensions that exist in music and the beauty of those tensions when they resolve and when they don't resolve and they're pulled out over periods of time. Are, it's an incredibly powerful thing to watch. But the reason I chose Filth uh, as as a record, partly because, I, I mean, I really I love it as an album. It's incredibly raw and it's full of promise. It's not actually, you know, it's 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 the, the very earliest seed of what becomes something else. And within that seed, you know all the DNA is there. You know, you have uh, Michael Jira's voice uh, and and his kind of particular way of using, uh, at, during that period at least, these very kind of tight phrases, uh, very sort of heavy-hitting uh, phrases. And you have uh, someone like Norman Westberg just making these completely monstrous guitar sounds uh, that are, it's like blocks of concrete smashing together. That's really how I think about filth. Uh, and they're, they're just smashing together over and over again in these sections, which is, you know, if you think about it in a kind of band structure, it's like literally the drums is one block of concrete, the basses are a block of concrete, and then there's this guitar and then voice somehow is this hammer trying to smash through these blocks of concrete. It's an extraordinary sense of kind of raw punk energy you know unformed um unrestricted unsure at times um and i found it really interesting talking to to norman i had the great pleasure to kind of talk to him at length about the process of you know basically him joining swans and and uh the the early recordings of the of those records and you know the from talking to him, it, it's it's so much clearer now. I can hear them kind of racing to each other during the pieces in the record, you know, because they were not really sure how some of the structures went. It was just like the guitar was high and then it was low and and that was kind of it. And you just made a noise and then you made that same noise, but it was slightly longer or different. And, and that's how it kind of grew. And you can hear that in the way that the pieces are recorded. And I, I love that uh, just desire to make something happen and just to get the pure force of that thing to exist and i think for me partly as well i don't work that way you know to to the work that i do is about process and about transformation uh in time whereas i get the sense that filth particularly uh and i think swan's life is very much about that responsiveness of people together in that moment generating something whereas for me it's many moments uh that sort of accumulate together that becomes the thing that becomes a a record or or a piece or whatever the case might be and i'm always interested in what i i guess you know we always want we don't have i mean i'm always interested in groups that that don't operate like that that can just manifest these amazing statements uh, within one take, uh, or within you know half a day in the studio, that j- just does not happen for me like that. And I feel very strongly that that when you listen to Filth, you you get that sense of just the rawness of possibility, and the rawness of the, the a seed that becomes something else in the future. Yeah, I think for me, I can vaguely recall first hearing this record um, being pretty blown away by 
it feels kind of dangerous to me as an album in the sense that I never feel entirely convinced that everything's going to stay in its vague place on the record. I mean, during Stay Here, you have that moment where the rhythm switches from like a swing into this 4-4, but it happens, almost feels like by accident because everything's so loose. It's like something's just... You know, it's like a a box on a cargo ship. Something's just tilted and it's slid into a different place. Um, I don't know if you can recall when you would have first heard this record or or where is that something that you can bring up? (laughs) It would have been it would have been in the in the 90s. Um, There was a period where I mean, we had a great record store in in, uh, Brisbane called Rocking Horse. Uh, that is still around, but during the nineties, I, I think for a while there, I was their number one customer. I'm not joking. I think I <laughs> wow. was the number one customer at the record store, uh, because basically I was in this very fortunate position. Uh, after I, I was when I was at university and and after I'd left school, I was running a fanzine, and I started writing for the local street press here, and uh, during that period. CDs still had a currency, you know, they were really a thing. You could you could get a CD and you could take it to a shop and they would buy it. And often I was doing a lot of reviews of, of lots of different music, some of it that I was really interested in and other stuff that, you know, quite honestly, I wasn't that interested in. But I was curious to know about it. So, you know, I'd review something and if it didn't work for me, then that's absolutely fine. I, you know, I can still listen to it critically. I would take those CDs and go to uh, the the local uh, another record store that bought secondhand uh, CDs, and I'd go in there with you know some weeks we'd get you know forty promos, so I'd take those in and I'd trade them in and I'd get some money, and then I'd go to the other record store and I'd buy you know five or six records <laughs> uh, with the money that I got for the the forty that I traded in. So I did this you know f- for about five years, uh, and during that time I developed a quite strong relationship with some of the uh, the record buyers at the store. Um, who to this day I'm still very friendly with. And uh, they actually recommended uh, Swans to me a couple of times. There was a period where some of the material, uh, I remember when Great Annihilator came out, that was that was a period where I really reconnected with, I'd, I'd listened to some of it before, but something about that record really t- twisted my interest and I... I at that point was very conscious of swans as this sort of entity. I guess that was the end of that, that kind of great period uh, for them. But um, I combine uh, body to body and job to job and filth together as an experience. And actually, to be honest, I like to listen to them in that way because those early uh, live recordings, I think are absolutely phenomenal. I have some great swans bootlegs from 80, 83, 84, 85. And I really love that period. I, I, you know, I would love to have gone to to hear them live during that time. And because I think partly what's interesting is when you think about it. And I've spoken to a lot of people that went to to, to hear Swans during that period. You know, a lot of people describe this idea of it being very loud. But it, you know, what's interesting is, you know, obviously Swans is still described as loud. But the loudness now is about this physicality. You know, it's about the the kind of heaviness of the sound off the stage into your body. Whereas I imagine that the loudness then was about this high-pitched feedback noise, mid-band 
assault. I spoke to a friend of mine uh, who I believe we'll probably talk about in a few minutes, Chris Abrahams, <laughs> ironically, who saw swans in the 80s in London. He said it was just like the sound pushed you up against – you wanted to get as far away from it as you could, so you'd sort of stand at the back of the venue <laughs> um, trying to kind of escape this assault. And I think that's uh, – it was a very interesting description for me because – and I, I said to him, well, what, you know, is it about and this this different kind of – frequency and he was like yeah it was very high pitched there's a lot of feedback and you know a lot of energy off the stage out of the amp so i think it's interesting to kind of contemplate how that shift happened and how people understand loud and noise you know i think that's what for me swans were one of the few bands that really kind of addressed that question of like well actually what does that mean when someone says it's loud you know what are they really reacting to and I found that kind of interesting. So when I listen back to those early live recordings that, that sort of sit alongside filth, and I, I kind of get a sense of, you, you, you know, you can tap into whatever that uh, feeling may have been like. You know, you're never going to know, but you, you can kind of imagine just from the sort of like ferociousness of how those, those live recordings are. On the subject of different iterations of loudness i feel like at the moment or you know in the most recent incarnation which is soon to be coming to a close they almost seem to be working with the loudness of duration as well i mean the whole thing is absolutely ginormous across every single um axis and i think there's something about being stranded in that which is so crucial you know when you're an hour in and then you've still got an hour ahead of you and there's an <laughs> yeah. hour behind you. It's like, Oh my God. <laughs> well, I think it's sort of like a, I, I really do think it's a kind of maximal minimalism, you know, what they do, uh, particularly in those kind of drawn out sections where there's a sort of very heavy repetition of a groove or whatever the case might be. You know, I think they've really learned to maximize the potential of the tension that is set out in that repetition. Uh, and I think it can be really, you know, the subtlest change can really uh, pull people with the band, you know, which is, I think, a really powerful thing to recognise, that you can have something that's very similar, but every time there's a little twist, suddenly it it pulls people deeper in with you. It's kind of like you're driving down. I mean, it's like Indian uh, classical music, you know, rather than it being about... Uh, the kind of repeating phrases about going deeper into the the sort of cycle of the music, and I think Swans have definitely kind of been able to develop that as a as a kind of methodology, particularly with this most recent version. I mean, the version of Swans that existed during Filth obviously operated in a totally different way, um, and it had its charms. And I, I still, you know, I really enjoy the promise of what that is and what that may have been at the time. But I think now the experience of Swans is probably much richer. Uh, I'm sure Michael thinks, would agree with that, that it's a much richer experience uh, than it would have been back in that other time because of the capacity of, of all of them to work together. And I think also just the vision of the group, you know, when they got back together, there was this, there's always a, an anticipation that it's, you know, reunions can be really tedious, but this was like a rebirth. Uh, and I think that takes a great deal of guts to, to do that. Um, because, you know, the legacy, the cultural legacy that surrounds certain projects is, it's a huge weight 
you know, it can be great that people respect it, but actually it's it's an anchor that can totally just drown you. Uh, and it, very few groups, uh, when they get back together, have that opportunity or m- make the opportunity to, to get the work to be something new and alive and, and vigorous. Yeah, I'm so delighted to be able to look back on this revival of swans and see how incredibly it's transcended that legacy that it had to become an entity all of itself is quite remarkable i mean you for cruel optimism expanded from what is primarily a solo endeavor i guess to work with a number of collaborators among them being thor harris who who plays drums and and as percussion and swans and also norman westberg uh, the guitarist that we've been discussing as well i mean what was it like working with both of those i understand you went to thor's house as well to, to yeah, work on his contribution <laughs> um yeah how was it working with them i mean they're both incredibly sweet human beings that, that, that ultimately they're they're true gentlemen those guys um and they're incredibly talented musicians in a way that is you know, this latest version of Swans is the sum of its parts. There's no doubt, in my mind, there's no doubt about that. When you listen to uh, what each of those members brings to the band, it's extraordinary. I mean, for me, the reason I approached Thor uh, was he has a sense of melody and harmony that I find completely compelling, and he's, he's so incredibly innately musical. Uh, in a way that I'm not, I have to say. You know, I don't, I'm in awe of how he manages to do what he does. This, these things flow out of him in such a natural, uncomplicated, but considered way. It's extraordinary how he does it. And his ability to perform across instruments um, and to find, in some cases, often the most minimal harmonic information. And yet he was able to bring in this whole other approach that I would not have come to at any point. I mean, that was really, for me, the, the, the reason I was interested in collaboration on this record. I mean, partly it was about the fact that for a very long time on my, you know, for quote-unquote solo records, I haven't really been working with many musicians. On Wilderness Experience, I had a couple of players on there, and I found the, the uh, experience of working with them really good. Vanessa Tomlinson, who played some of the concert bass drum on Wilderness and Mirrors, and also plays on Cruel Optimism. She's an incredible musician, and when I worked with her during Wilderness and Mirrors, she really opened up a particular way of approaching the material that I would not have got to on my own. And I'm indebted to her, and obviously to all the musicians that have played on the records, uh, particularly Cruel Optimism, just of being able to make me be less comfortable and to know less about where things are going. That's a really great situation. And, I mean, uh, there are pieces on the record that are, without the contribution of the of the other musicians, would be entirely different and, and not as rich, in my opinion. So something like Negative, Negative Drone, uh, that piece is very much, the backbone of that piece is, is Norman Westberg playing my baritone guitar and creating this incredibly aching, uh, flow of kind of guitar droning feedback 
Um, he it was incredible working with Norman, I have to say, like in terms of someone that is incredibly generous, very skillful, but also has an amazing working knowledge of how you can make the guitar into this other vicious uh, but beautiful beast. I was incredibly, it was incredible to watch him play because he would just get these sounds out of the guitar that you just think, wow, is that really, you know, what, what what's he doing in there? He's going to have a couple of very sort of modest pedals, but he just knew how to make the amp and the guitar talk to each other in a way that was so strong and direct and heavy. You know, it was really heavy uh, and beautiful at the same time. It was just extraordinary. So when he recorded this sort of uh, section for for Negative Drone, I mean, really at that point, the, the piece resolved in a way that it had not resolved up until that point. Um, and there were a number of pieces on the record that really took someone to be like, actually, I'm going to go in this direction that you haven't thought about that made me think, okay, well, maybe there's there's this other pathway. You know, there are many pathways through the forest, and I'd walk down one where really it was just, it was a, might have been a, a sort of interesting view, but there was nothing really. There was no uh, anxiety. There was no sense of discovery to be had. There was, there was, there was just a, a beautiful view, and we had to cut down that view and, and be dragged off somewhere else and suddenly be like, I don't know where I am, but I'm very excited by the things that I'm going to learn. Uh, and that was definitely the process for a couple of the pieces. So I'm, I'm very fortunate to have recorded with, with both of those guys. They really bought a, a, a language. They bought their language, and they were willing to, to I guess, let me articulate their voices in, in the kind of final manifestation of the record. Look, this seems like a appropriate point for me to um, quickly express how much I'm absolutely loving Cruel Optimism. We'd need a second part of this podcast for me to gush to an extent that actually felt like I was saying everything I wanted to say. But just so you know, the record is becoming more and more crucial, I guess, to my... Um, don't want to say life that sounds almost hyperbolically grand but i i mean uh, it's become on the edge of my life right now and i keep coming back to it we're recording on the day of um an election over here in the uk and it feels particularly yeah. pertinent to be listening to a record which feels like it's shaking me by the shoulders and um making me consider the world in which i'm existing right now so Thank you for providing me with a listening experience, which, you know, on a day like today is the slap around the face that I need to uh, get on with it and make a decision that I'm going to be happy with. My pleasure. And yes, we should all be slapped in the face every once in a while. <laughs> a, little, a little bit of a shove once in a while is an important thing just to wake up. 
you know, it's very easy to, to daydream your life away and daydream the world away. And somehow we seem to have a lot of, it's even if it's not daydream, if it's just apathy, whatever it is that, yeah, we need to be very present right now because it's a very, very, it's always a very complex situation, but somehow right now, I think it's, it's never been more, uh, bewildering, but critical, you know, we're at a real juncture. We're at the death of the 20th century right now and, and the birth of the 21st century. This is the year I think where we switch, you know, it's never really, it's never really the, the, the date that turns the century over. There's always a, a period after one century, you know, like the 20th century erupted kind of on the back of world war one. And I think the 21st century is going to erupt on the back of whatever the hell you call this period now. <laughs> Who knows? Um, we should go to your second choice uh, if you'd like to again introduce this one and talk about why this is important. Yeah, well, I I, I picked a record by David Toop, uh, Black Chamber, and I I picked this record for a number of reasons it has two it actually has some of my favorite sounds like just pure sounds on it that i can kind of i find myself thinking about uh or trying to emulate the sensation sometimes in my own work of how they make me feel um i mean david is an incredible musician and curator writer He's, as far as I'm concerned, one of the most inspirational figures that I've had the good fortune to come in contact with. I personally owe him a great deal. He was one of the first people that I invited to Australia in the early 2000s and was incredibly supportive of the idea of Room 40 and what Room 40 was doing in terms of reaching out to the rest of the world and trying to get a kind of community interacting between the sort of great southern continent and, and everywhere else. And, and, and he really did uh, encourage me to, to kind of keep going with it. It was him and a number of other musicians that really were very generous in those early days where I was, uh, to be completely honest, I was very unsure about what Room 40 was and what it could be. Um, and not just Room 40, but also, you know, in my own work, I really was not sure of of uh, the capacity for the work to speak uh, to to anyone, and David was incredibly kind, very generous, offered to you know collaborate together early on, and those experiences were valuable, uh, incredibly valuable for me in terms of building up my capacity. I think to to take the work seriously and to recognise what it can mean uh, to other artists, but also with an audience. So. Uh, I've always been a huge fan of his work, and this was a, a record that he made, this Black Chamber record he made during that, that time where I, f I, I first got to know him. So I, f I think it was probably one of those records that in, in a sort of I had a real-time relationship with, whereas, I mean, some of his earlier records, uh, you know, all the way back into the, the 70s, I, I have a huge admiration for, but Black Chamber has this very particular place in my heart, I guess you could say, for two reasons. One is this uh, piece, Apartment Thunder, uh, Eros Sacrifice. I think that piece, for me, is one of the most haunting, uneasy, but beautiful pieces of music that I've ever heard. Uh, in fact, in, the whole record is like you, it's like you're listening to music in your dreams. David Toop, I think, makes the music that is the soundtrack to the weirdest 
and most uneasy dreams that I have <laughs> uh, in that it's, it's not quite, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's tangible music, but it's still alien and you don't really know what's next and you don't want to know because it's this kind of constant opening out of itself. It's just exquisite in a way that uh, I can't uh, really explain. <laughs> and I, I, it's, I'm constantly amazed by what he does. Um, the other piece on that record is is Black Chamber, the the sort of title piece, which has some of the most amazingly beautiful sounding guitar yeah. you could you could ever imagine. Absolutely, just profoundly washes over you with this kind of rich sort of southern sound. It's amazing, and I I always uh, I find myself returning to that track over and over. Also, the kind of the nature of the drum in that track and the string uh, parts that I'm pretty sure were actually done by uh, Tom Rashawn, uh, in who's you know from Los Angeles, who'd supplied David with these these uh, string sounds, and and David wasn't really sure what to do with them, and they ended up becoming part of this track. And there's a I think they, there are a couple of pieces on the record where they happen, and they're so. Uh, the, the relationship feels un, unnatural, but so natural at the same time. It's just, it's amazing, you know, to, to listen to music like that where I'm not sure where it comes from, I'm not sure where it's going. I really enjoy that uh, sensation of being unsure of where a record's going to take me. Uh, and if I'm, if I'm allowed to go there, actually, is part of the question as well. Like, can you really, can you really go to, to where the music's taking you? Do you have the permission to be part of it, particularly something like that apartment thunder track. You know, I listened to that. I think like, really, am I allowed to, am I allowed to listen to this? It's a great, it's a great feeling. Yeah. Um, I was listening to this last night and I have to say, I haven't heard this record before and haven't really listened to much to David's music. I've read a couple of his books, but um, the track raw mouth shape came on, which has Terry day on bamboo reed pipes. Um, and that is the strangest, almost duet between his pipes and this um, clattering sound in the foreground, which I don't know what it is, but they're both responding to each other. And as you say, there seems to be this alien thing where there's, it's like nothing I've heard, but there is definitely a, a relationship and a communication going on, just, you know, one that I can't share in, <laughs> which is strange. Yeah, which is that's that's a great description of the record. You know, you you don't know what these instruments are. Are they instruments? I mean, the electronics themselves to me sound not like electronics. Sometimes, you know, this weird blurring between what is the source material for these sounds, and why is it that when you put three or four of these elements together, they form this other completely foreign listening experience? David just has. I mean. Even like David's voice in the record, these kind of like whispered conversations that sort of float around uh, in the piece, I find really uneasy, but completely. I mean, strangely for me, quite quite calm because I know I know David. You know, he's a, he's, a, he's a very dear friend. So when I hear his voice, even though there is this kind of sinister whispering going on, I still feel kind of at ease. That oh yeah, I mean I'm in good hands. I'm in very capable hands. So, uh, yeah, it's a real, it, I mean, it's a very personal selection, but I think it's one of these records. And I mean, David's work generally, I think, is he just has such a personal language that he has managed to develop over these decades 
you know, I hear his music and I know straight away it is his work. You know, there's something about the way he puts together elements and the space that he leaves between them, this sort of sensitivity to, to presence and absence that is just unlike, completely unlike anything else. Uh, so, I mean, it's, I'm sure this is one of those records that I will consistently return to in my life and always draw something different from it, um, which not all music offers that possibility, but certainly I think David's music generally, it does. I'd love to now have your third suggestion, Lawrence, your third important album, please, and, and why it's important. Which is Ether by uh, The Next, uh, who I think are, you know, I've said this, I've said this before, and I, I'm willing to stand by, I think they're one of the, certainly they are the most important band in Australia. There's no question about that. In terms of a relationship between musicians, they're one of the most important bands, I think, in the world and one of the most original groups uh, that have been making work. And each of them individually are, are genius musicians in their own right, but when they come together, there is this transcendent quality to how that they play together that is just absolutely magical in a way that, you know, I, I would have sat through many, many hours, probably in excess of... 30 hours of the next music live and I have never once uh, felt anything but being completely engrossed in what they do. Um, they are just an extraordinary uh, machine that is endlessly complex and evolving and getting deeper and richer every single time that they, they make work together. I mean, I, I have a huge amount of respect for what it is that they've done. And this particular record, which in some respects is a, a little bit of a, I think at the time when it arrived, it was quite unexpected. The records that came before Ether was probably more free in some respects, and there was more active possibly as well. Ether is this very calculated slow uh fading away almost uh or building up and fading away these elements where you just get these sort of eruptions of this very lush sounding uh harmony and, and sort of drum cymbal texture working together that then just sort of floats and then there's a sort of rush of tide of another wave of this sound and then it sort of floats for a while and it just keeps going and going and uh, you know, over the, the sort of 60-something minutes of the piece, it's just such a rejuvenating experience to listen to it. You know, just the, the, the willingness to let elements breathe and to not rush the experience of the music unfolding, I find really powerful. I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, what people would call ambient music, 
I think that's a very big part of what makes ambient music compelling is when you can be left to to exist in the moment as it unfolds, that you don't necessarily have an idea of how time operates in music. Uh, for me, the best ambient music has this kind of sense of timelessness, and I don't mean that in a kind of historic reading of, of sound, more in, in the way that it unfolds every time you encounter it, that time is, is, is bent or curved or non-existent or differently existent. And the next v- do that very well. In a live performance situation, it can be extraordinary. You, you sit down and they start this process of having the music come from nowhere, and then suddenly they've completed this cycle and 45 minutes has passed, but it feels like you've had 30 seconds with them. Or sometimes it feels like you've had five hours with them. You know, it can go in either direction. And it's amazing that they can just so naturally play with this sense of time and the space that exists between themselves as players and the, the kind of possibilities of their instruments. Yeah, I had a live experience with them just a month back, actually, which was quite strange in that it was at Cheltenham Jazz Festival which I think attracts people who just generally have an interest in jazz who had chanced a concert in the town hall and they had a announcer who came on before they started who I think saw his role as trying to prepare people for what was about to happen and people who perhaps weren't primed for um primed but maybe hadn't experienced the next before um and he wanted to illustrate the fact that they just improvise every time and i think he was struggling to find the words but he just said look they don't know anything they don't know anything at all (laughs) (laughs) and (laughs) everyone laughed but i think they soon saw what he meant but there was a point in the gig and um you've obviously seen them as you say so many times so I don't know whether this is something that now happens with all of their live sets or just some, but they reach this almost terminus where everything is billowing and rippling and the sound is just rolling over itself. And it almost, uh, there's a point in ether, actually, this record you've selected where you wonder whether it'll ever find an escape from the moment that it's created for itself, where everything is just, a, a cloud and at that point a lot of people did start to leave the concert because i think that's a kind of right you're committed to this or you know you're not kind of moment but um mm. yeah their live performance is incredible i mean i think the for me the first sound that they make is always fascinating because you know that that's going to be the genesis of the next hour of what you're going to listen to you know yeah, which I I just kind of kind of begin to imagine the pressure of that. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you know that, and it is great. I've seen a couple of shows where really there's this sort of deep breathing out that happens before they start, where it's like they're they're each waiting for each other to kind of make their first gesture, and this is kind of like showdown thing. Everyone's got their guns out, but no one's shooting yet. <laughs> and uh, I really like that those moments sometimes where you just i get the sense like 
everyone's like, well, you know, I'm just going to hold until you go kind of thing. Mm. Um, and I've seen one or two shows where that's really happened. It's been like, is it going to start? You know, is there, is there a moment? Is there a spark? Wow. But then, of course, there is, and then it just erupts. And it's true. Like, there is something in that sensation where they – it comes to this point where, you know, how how do you solve this problem mm. of the piece? But they always solve it. It's just, it's amazing. They're like super sleuths of sound. Um, there is this kind of like amazing moment where somehow they just find a resolution to the most improbable combinations of elements. And it's never the same solution. That's what's so amazing. It's not like they do a show and it's the same every time. It's like every single concert is you know even in one night the two sets are usually radically different to how they 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 begin and and frame something and then and let it kind of uh, you know either fade out or erupt or whatever the case is going to be so and i've seen them in very different circumstances i mean most recently uh they were supporting nick cave in the bad seats on a kind of essentially sort of outdoor stadium tour and uh, it was quite extraordinary to watch them operate in that kind of environment. And then at the same time, you know, they just actually un- uh, played in the concert hall here. The night I was flying back from Tbilisi, they uh, they played in in the, the sort of main concert hall here. And you know, the experience there will be very different to to some of the other shows I've seen them play in in, in much more sort of modest venues. But they manage to do it. They transcend the space and they kind of pull everything in towards them, which I think is quite extraordinary. It's like you are inside with them in this thing and the space is, the frame is somehow fixed uh, in the next concert. It can be a huge room or a small room and the experience or the detail or the possibility of the music is still as rich and, and kind of compelling. And again, you worked with two of the members for your most recent record um which i could only imagine was incredible and i I know that you've also released chris's music as well on room 40 as well but what what was it like to work with both of these people and i think i've seen you mention that you give them some pretty or at least one of them quite abstract instructions to play with (laughs) yeah yeah I mean, Tony's contribution was the f- the second part that was the very genesis of uh, Cruel Optimism. Mats Gustafsson had recorded some saxophone for me very, very early on. In fact, actually, as Wilderness of Mirrors was wrapping up, I did this other session with him. And uh, that was the first piece. And then Tony was the second. And I, I, you know, I was interested to see how it was Tony would approach this kind of material and it was you know he, he was very generous recorded basically 80 minutes worth of material for me wow and within that 80 minutes there was probably like about seven or eight that for me really twisted the 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 early beginnings of cruel optimism and made me recognize two things sometimes you know critically it made me recognize something that i'm not interested in uh which is actually for me one of the most important parts of the record the things that aren't going to fit are as important or more important than the things that do fit. And there were these parts where I thought, I love the sound of this, but it is not part of what I'm doing. Um, and it has, it's, it's not within the orbit of, of the greatest sort of scheme. So that was very helpful to have those. And at the other extreme, we had these moments where it was like, these sections here are exactly the kind of textural capacity of 
percussion and drums that I, I want to have uh, within the record. And some of the, the kind of, it's almost like the, the, the way he creates white noise with a snare drum is extraordinary. You know, that and his ability to play the cymbals. I mean, that cymbal playing on ether is just so amazingly reduced, but yeah. completely rich at the same time. Like, absolutely, it need be nothing else because it's everything, you know. And um, so having t- Tony do that was massively helpful in that, that first kind of period of, of starting the record out. And Chris, you know, is another one of those people that just has the most incredible sense of harmony. I mean, his solo records, the I have a very strong memory of listening to Throne. Before, at, at that point, it wasn't an, a record that was going to be part of Room 40. He just said, oh, I've made this out solo album. I was playing at the Nano Festival, and I went over to his house after a gig. And he said, oh, I've made the solo record. Uh, do you want to have a listen to it? I was like, yeah, of course. You know, I'd love to have a listen to it. And we were sitting in his living room, and he kind of had the lights were very dim, and he just put it on. And I remember listening to things like, oh, holy shit. This is the, <laughs> the scariest music I've ever heard. You know, and I didn't know where it had come from. It, was, it had that same quality a little bit. And I think he does share something, actually, with, with David Toop in that regard, that I am uncertain where the music comes from inside him but just generally you know the sound that he got on that throne record particularly the the kind of positive organ uh sound uh, that he generated out of that instrument is just so foreign and uneasy and uh without reference point you know in 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 what you usually consider the real world it's just so i don't know i found it really really unsettling and I was, of course, completely obsessed with releasing the album pretty much straight up. But <laughs> and all of his records, I think that we've, uh, you know, that I've had the pleasure to be part of, share that quality of being unexpected. And I'm always surprised when he sends me music to to put out. And honestly, with with Cruel Optimism, he was, you know, absolutely uh, critical again in sort of flipping some of the harmonic capacities of the music. I'd I'd sent him. <laughs> you know, quite, quite poetic uh, instruction for the way that, the, you know, he could approach some of the material. And he, whether or not he, he paid attention to that or not, he, he, he got so much more out of it than I could have ever hoped um, that he could, he could bring to the table with just some very, sim- in some cases, very simple gestures. Uh, and they became, the, again, the foundation of a sort of density around harmony in, in some of those pieces. That was that was critical, uh, and and sort of shaped a certain capacity of of the record actually. So I mean I, I'm hoping in the future there's a chance for me to work with with him and and with Tony again because I think they both have a very particular sense of the way that they approach their work, uh, and I like that it's so distinctly their own. When you listen to Chris's piano playing, his sense of you know the way his fingers move across the piano, you know instantly it is his playing. Mm. Um, and it's the same for Tony. He has these very direct, and for a drummer, that's really something. You know that he has these very direct gestural codes uh, that are constantly in different iterations, but are very, very compelling. I think when you hear them, that there's a sort of intensity to them that is unlike a lot of other drummers i have to say you know he has a language that is very very uh much his own and he's developed so strongly i think particularly in the last sort of 10 years there's been this other layer to the way that he does what he does that is just so 
are quite unbelievable that people can that someone a human being could hold that sense of multiple senses of time in the same moment <laughs> yeah i mean a good illustration of that is the latest record the next put out unfold where a lot of his drumming on that album is absolutely insane i don't know have you have you heard that record yet I, yeah i have yeah i'm 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 like 100 percent uh next you could say next fanboy i think that's absolutely <laughs> fine i have no problem every time a new record comes out the first thing i do is is generally order it um and uh then i'm constantly like hassling chris uh usually because i'm in touch with him quite a bit uh now tony quite often as well so i'm always like so you know when's that when's the next album coming you know they're like oh for god's sake just shut up just let us do what we're gonna do and like come on guys you know? so yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 I am a huge fan. I think they're an incredibly, you know, I'm very pleased to see that they are, particularly in Europe and, and the UK, getting some proper recognition. Here in Australia, I mean, they're obviously very well respected here, but really they are a national treasure. And the sooner that that is enshrined, the better. You know, we have not taken stock of what it is that they have created uh, as much as we should have in this country. I mean, Ether is actually one of the records been accepted into the National Film and Sound Archive collection here, which is, you know, a great thing. But, you know, you talk to people on the street, they don't necessarily know who the next are. And, you know, God damn it, they should. Yeah. This is the, there is, you know, you look at the other groups that we produce in this country, uh, musicians, there are some good ones, but the next are in a league of their own, absolutely categorically in a league of their own. spoke a bit earlier and in fact throughout this discussion as well with this, this the a conversation about swans you know reaching out to these people to collaborate on cruel optimism and i'm fascinated particularly as someone who as you've said yourself primarily works uh, predominantly solo what were you driving for when you reached out to these particular musicians was it something sonic that you had in mind that you wanted them to approximate or capture or was it a spirit of a particular person that you thought would make a a, a w- would be a important presence on the record i think i think always when you invite someone you have something about them you know in terms of their capacity as a musician in your mind whether or not that's a sound or a uh, a kind of sensation that they've given you in the music that they create i'm not you know i'm not quite sure it's probably both or one of those things for me i'm obviously i admire their capacity as players enormously and i think you know i've probably had ideas in my mind about what it was that they could potentially bring to a piece. And, and, you know, specifically I would send people pieces, you know, that, that it wasn't like here's 
generally it wasn't, you know, here's the whole whole thing, you know, play on it. It was like, this is a piece, or this is a section of a piece, uh, and I'm interested to know what you could do with that. So clearly there was some kind of thought that there would be a, a possibility for the languages to to kind of come into unison with each other, um, or, or not, you know, that they were going to provide another vocabulary that, that wasn't there in, in this phrase. But what almost always happened, uh, whether it was, you know, recording live in, in the studio with, with Norman and, and someone like Thor, or whether it was doing it remotely with someone like Chris, or, uh, you know, uh, Heinz Riegler as well, another musician that played on the record, incredibly um, important to the, a number of the pieces. Their contribution far exceeded my initial thought of what it could be. They unlocked this thing, This they opened up, the pieces in a way that I just didn't even, you know, I couldn't even see the door uh, and they found the door and then they opened it. And that was really amazing for me. Uh, and I think, th- you know, the record, it, it opened up a sort of sense of possibility uh, that would not have been there had these people not kind of contributed to it. And the thing is, like, not all of the contributions are used on the record. You know, there's a lot of material that is not part of Cool Optimism. But the moments where there was this opening out were, you know, that's where the richness is. That's where the dynamics of the record kind of emerged. And obviously there are other moments where it was about this alignment of of either stacking in some other kind of harmonic thing to, to really flesh out uh, a particular sort of phrase or something like that, but more often than not, the contributions really—they were this—they were this driving force that you know made me reconsider what I thought were fixed positions, uh, and that's really important, uh, particularly during the process of making a record, and particularly for me with the way that I make a record, as it being a much longer—it's not—it's not a kind of live in the studio situation. It's something that takes many, many months, um, in fact, years in the case of Cruel Optimism to be made. It. It, musically, it was an incredibly uh, provocative environment that isn't always possible to do in a solo situation. I mean, when I when I talk about these these groups uh, like Swans or or uh, the Next, what I'm impressed by and in in some respects amazed by is the relationship between the players. You know that they have this very different languages in a way but somehow they find meaning between each other uh and i i guess for me part of the process of this collaboration was a similar kind of journey you know what could we talk to each other about and what language would we use if we were going to have that conversation and uh you know i might offer some kind of provocation towards something then someone else either responds directly to that provocation or they send me a provocation in return. Uh, and more often than not, it was this this sort of two-way conversation uh, that took place even on the remote collaborations. You know, it really was this this dialogue that went uh, went between us. And I think for me, that's something I've really grown from, uh, you know, and it's good to be able to say that. I mean, I've been doing this quite a while um, and I'm still surprised by it. I'm still surprised by what people can bring to, to a uh, situation and not even just musically sometimes it's socially as well you know there's a, there is a strong for me sensation of community in the way that that cool optimism was done that it's about 
a chance for people to to share not just a kind of uh, interaction as musicians, but as human beings. And I had a gr- it was a great pleasure to to have these conversations and to spend time with people. Like having Norman come visit or, or going to visit Thor, for example, it was just it was a true pleasure. I mean, an incredible barbecue in uh, Texas, the best barbecue <laughs> of my life, um, and some great tacos as well, and some great <laughs> conversation. And I got to pat. Thor's dogs and cats. I mean, like, it was really, oh, it was a wonderful, wonderful time and spent some great time with Connor Walker there as well, who, you know, very kindly lent me his room in Thor's house. <laughs> so, you know, I'm very, very indebted to those to those guys because it, it, it you know, it, it contributes much more than just the music itself. You know, those relationships and, you know, the, I guess you you call them friendships and the, to the future are really meaningful. And that's actually the, that's where the real it's where the important stuff lies, actually, in these relationships between each other. You know, how we support each other, how we help each other grow, how we recognize the importance of what it means to, to one another. Uh, it's really, it's, it's critical, you know. That's the, the value of music is in this kind of exchange, the human exchange that can happen. It's very peculiar to us as a species to have this kind of desire. And I think we take it for granted a lot of the time. I certainly have taken it for granted previously but i really feel coming out of cruel optimism now and i guess being able to share the record with with people and to know how it helped me resolve a bunch of the questions that and you know there's still obviously questions lingering but like to to know that there's a way to decode in some way shape or form some of the challenging issues that we face and to have a if not a release then a kind of blanket to kind of cover us a little bit when it is particularly cold and bitter out there that's you know that if that's what the record can do then that's a really valuable thing and certainly for me it offered me a chance to really decode decompress some of the tension and frustration and anxiety uh that the current geopolitical environment engenders um, and that's, again, also very much to do with, with where the record comes from, Lauren Valance writing uh, around trauma, around affect, around this concept of cruel optimism. You know, I, I'm as indebted to her as I am to the musicians. I mean, the record is a culmination of all these things coalescing with one another uh, and me trying to, in s- some sense, control that, but also let it be, be controlled by it. You know, this this wonderful kind of give and take that goes on when you're making work. So I count myself incredibly fortunate to have had these experiences. And I'm, you know, I'm very happy that this year I'm able to share that with people uh, in, in a concert situation or, you know, whether it be, like you say, you know, private listening to the record um, or whether it be in, in, a, in a sort of performance situation. It's a really wonderful thing to be able to share share the work. Speaking of which, I think I read online that you're due to bring this over to Europe in October. Is that right? Yeah, I'm going to come over at the end of October, uh, hopefully for a, for a week and a bit, and then probably back again in November uh, for some other uh, festivals. I'm actually coming in August as well to do a couple of shows in, um, in Poland and Slovenia and Spain. But it's a very quick visit in August, but I'll be spending a little bit longer at the end of October. So hopefully, uh, hopefully some shows in the UK, um, but certainly some 
uh, in in Europe. I mean, uh, Semi Brave Festival uh, is is already announced, and you know, I'm very very happy to be sharing a bill with Gas and Death Prod. Uh, you know, two musicians that I have a very deep affection for, and there's a, a bunch of other people playing as well that I'm very very much looking forward to to listening to. So. Yeah, hopefully I can actually catch some other performances while I'm there. <laughs> that's always that's always the cruelty of touring. You, know, you can go to some amazing festivals. I'm actually very happy. Uh, I'll, I will be coming over to do a festival in Poland in August, and uh, the invitation is from from Michael Girard, who I think is curating one of the stages. So wow. I'll be very happy to um, to be able to hear Swans in this configuration because uh, I haven't actually heard the band since i saw them in, in in 2012 so it's been quite a while since i've i've uh, heard someone so i'm very much looking forward to it because i've been touring the last few times they've been to australia and uh when i've been overseas and they've been overseas we've been you know, i've been touring in other places that they haven't been so occasionally these mo- serendipitous moments they're very very good to to celebrate absolutely well i hope that is as rewarding as i imagine it will be and it sounds like Another brief trip to Europe is a, an opportunity for you to flip your body on its head and get a lot of jet lag as well as a souvenir. So, um, Exactly. It's win-win. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I don't know if there's anything else, Lawrence, you wanted to mention in terms of what you've got coming up, um, which, you know, I know is a whole ton of stuff, but I don't know if there's any kind of choice things that you wanted to mention. Uh, I've got two new projects. One is called The Visitors. A few years ago, I was going back and forth with George Romero, actually trying to get him to come to Australia. And uh, unfortunately, he couldn't come in there. I mean, we we had him coming, and then uh, he actually got a a film project up, which hasn't materialised. I don't know what exactly happened there, but he wasn't able to to come down because he started uh, principal shooting on a a film project, which I was hoping was another zombie film but uh i didn't get any details about that so i guess it wasn't that <laughs> um but uh i was very interested in re-soundtracking uh night of the living dead and uh it's quite a difficult film because of the way it was mixed to kind of get, extract the audio out and there's a new version that's just come out that I, I still think has a mixed audio track so it wasn't possible to do it um but i have made a piece which takes one very infamous scene of uh, i guess the first time that you see the zombies in the film wandering around because I think you know as a cultural phenomenon the zombie has come to represent a lot more than a, a just a sort of horrific character um, you know even if you look at the concept there's some really interesting writing around the idea of the labor force and the zombie and the role of the zombie as the kind of um, inheritor uh, in these narratives uh, that you see in these films often there's not many humans left and they're destroying the zombies but there's this other side to it, which is sort of represents the zombie as the inheritor of the earth, you know, that we have had our moment and now it's time for these other versions of us to take over and potentially not do the kinds of damage that we do to the planet. So there's a, a lot of interesting writing around this idea of the zombie. So I'm, you know, I was very uh, curious about that. So I developed this piece uh, called The Visitors, which is, extracts that little section, which in the film is about three or four seconds long, and I've actually made it 50 minutes, uh, slowing it right down. So you wow. have this kind of gentle light play that happens in this very, very heavy, low-frequency, minimal kind of uh, landscape of sound that goes on. So I'm actually going to present that next week at, at the Dark Mofo Festival in Tasmania. 
And then the other piece that I'm starting to work on is actually, uh, it's called Wavefield. It's, it's going to be a 12-hour performance piece that I'm going to be delivering on a beach uh, overnight from dusk until dawn next year. Uh, actually, it's on exactly the same time as we have the Commonwealth Games here uh, in, on the Gold Coast, and it's on during the Commonwealth Games. So I'll be doing 12 hours of this very kind of minimal, reductive, tidal, sound tides kind of piece uh, on a beach, and people are basically invited to come and sleep uh, overnight inside the sound field uh, on the beach. So that's the next major thing that I I need to start working on because obviously 12 hours of music is quite a lot of music to be generating. But that's the that's the joy and the, and the curiosity of of, <laughs> of a project like that. And presumably you'll be working on these new projects from the comfort of your brand new studio or reasonably new studio beneath your house, right? Yes. I, I will be definitely exploiting the, the wonders of, of architecture. I've just built a, a negative space, I think is the name of the studio. And basically, I live in a stilt house, so it's it's lifted off the ground, and I've built a large kind of sort of bunker underneath it. And, uh, yeah, it's a fantastic opportunity to, to sort of set things up. I mean, there's a whole section where we have the label uh, set up, and then uh, there's a kind of recording and, and mastering section here so a lot of the work that i do is based out of here which is very very luxurious to be totally honest to have this much space and uh to have access to the instruments and have opportunities to record and and mix here is just uh, absolutely fantastic so i'm counting myself very fortunate i have to confess <laughs> well likewise it's been amazing to uh have quite a sizable chunk of your precious time, particularly with a 12-hour piece looming on the horizon. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me about both your music and the music you love, Lawrence. This has been really nice. My pleasure, Jack. Thank you. And to everyone listening, I'll see you next time. <laughs>